you may the be seated. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Good morning. I hope all of you had a wonderful Christmas. If that was with family or with friends, or if you even had some solo time by yourself, that's great. Uh, we hope, though, that, uh, of course, across the board, that it was a wonderful time for you, uh, however you spent that time, but also that you got some time, at least, reflecting upon the meaning, the true meaning of uh, Christmas time. Of course, we recognize that if you're here in church uh, the day after Christmas, uh, that the Lord has spoken into your life and has touched you in many different ways, and we're excited about that. And so I hope that you got some time to reflect yesterday upon the coming of our Lord and Savior. Uh, certainly one of the great passages that reflect upon that was the call to worship, the Isaiah passage that Jerry read earlier. Uh, if you missed that, if you got here a little bit late and missed that, basically what happens is that God details for us what the status of this world is right now. Into the darkness of this world comes the light. And so it begins with a recognition of the darkness of this world. And then he moves on, the author moves on in the middle verses of Isaiah 9 there uh, to talk about the salvation that is coming and what that salvation will look like, uh, what it looks like when the world is redeemed by Jesus Christ. And then towards the end of the passage, it talks about how that's going to happen. And the author, now this is 700 years before the birth of Jesus, 
So he has only the notion of that that has been given by God as he's been inspired to write. Um, but he writes those marvelous words about a son being given, a child being born. And into that mix, we have that descriptive line. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his name will be called these things. Now, uh, many years ago, I had an office worker, co-worker in, in an office where I was at, and uh, he was from Brazil, and he, he called me, he gave me a nickname, and it was Pubu. Uh, and so he, oh, he called me Pubu, or some version of that, some, you know, you need to say that in, in Portuguese in order to understand it, I guess. Anyhow, he called me Pubu, and he called me that, you know, for years. I, I, I worked with the guy for three years, uh, and he called me that for a long period of time, and for a long time, it was just a label. It was just a name that he gave me, and I just, okay, I'm poo-boo to him. And so whenever he called poo-boo, I responded, and that was the extent of things. And never thought much about it until I finally got up the nerve at one point to say, you know, what, what's with the nickname? Why, why do you call me poo-boo? Uh, and he says, uh, well, it's because poo-boo means little pigeon. In, in Portuguese, and whenever you sit at your desk reading, you bob like this the whole time you're reading and stuff like that. So I have to tell you that ever since then, I've been very rigid in my head. But for a long time, the name was just a word. It was just a bunch of sounds by which I recognized that he identified me in the same way, frankly, that you will use the name Henry. When you talk with me, when you call me Henry, it's just a couple of sounds that we recognize as associated with me. That's not necessarily what's going on in the text here where God says through Isaiah and his name will be called. It's not a label that is identifying the baby Jesus. It is associated, there is a meaning associated with that. It's like the pobu here that uh, he associated me with a bobbing head, that kind of a thing, with a pigeon. And therefore, he labeled me that way in the same way this text describes not just the label, not just the way in which we recognize Jesus, but an actual label that describes who he is. That's what it means to have a name in the Old Testament. Ancient Near East in general, uh, very much so identified a name of somebody or they called somebody something when it was associated with their characteristics. So, this baby Jesus that we have celebrated over the past couple of days and that you've been anticipating if you're an anticipatory kind of a guy or girl, if you've been excited about the coming of Christmas for some time, this focus is around Jesus Christ, of course. And this, 700 years before he was born, this is what somebody looks down and sees and says, this is the character of this man who is coming to save this world. This is the character of this child that is coming to save the world. And he describes it this way. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, Wonderful Counselor. Most of us know, can break that down fairly easily. Wonderful. The idea of that there's a, something is full of wonder, that, that it is awe-inspiring. This is what we mean by wonder. But part of the problem for us today is that superlatives get used for everything. Everybody talks of in terms of superlatives. When I first started ministry, somebody came in, this was a church down in Pittsburgh, 
uh, this wonderful older lady in the congregation came and was just always telling me what an amazing leader I was and what a wonderful pastor and all these kinds of things. And she just, and I just floated on the air for so long because she, and then I noticed that she talked to everybody like that. You know, oh, you're just a wonderful little person and you're just so wonderful when you're sick. And so I realized that my wonder was no different than the wonder of everything else from ice cream to the Steelers to, you know, the wonder just means everything. That's clearly not what our text is implying. When the author here has said, hey, this Savior who is coming into the world will be a wonderful counselor, we have to slow it down and realize that this is just not somebody saying something wonderful about Jesus. He's saying, this Jesus, this Savior that is coming into this world, will be awe-inspiring, will be full of wonder. Now, what is full of wonder? The counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. Now, in our society, overwhelmingly, my guess is that initially when most of us think about counselor, we think of uh, some type of a support or an advisor or some caregiver, uh, perhaps for an emotional uh, or uh, mental connection or something that will inspire us or help us out. Uh, and there is no doubt that our Savior fulfills that kind of a role. Jesus is that kind of a, a counselor, that kind of a caregiver for us. Um, but again, that's not necessarily what was intended by that word back in the day. When the scriptures speak about a counselor, particularly in the Old Testament, they don't have in mind somebody who is not in charge, but kind of advising the one who is in charge. That's kind of how we think of, of a counselor or an advisor, somebody who steps off to the side and says, well, I think maybe you should do this, or I think you should do that. Some of you will remember that horrid bumper sticker uh, that was around, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, God is my co-pilot. Do you remember that? It's just, and most of us know that that's terrible because God's not in the co-pilot seat just kind of advising us as we go down the road. A counselor in the ancient Near East, in the Davidic time particularly, David's time, the counselor was somebody who didn't just give advice to the king, but it was the one who the king then appointed and set apart to set the agenda, to set the plan, to determine the very purpose. The counselor was not somebody that kind of gave advice to the guy who made the decisions. The counselor was the one who made the decisions. I think in terms of this wonderful counselor, what, what the passage, what Isaiah is talking about is not so much this idea that, you know, that God will inspire us by the wisdom and the advice that he gives us to live our life. I'm not mocking that because that's very true. Our Lord does that. But I don't think that's what Isaiah has in mind. When he says here, a wonderful counselor, he's saying, look, you are going to be awe-inspired. You're going to be filled with wonder at the guidance at the direction, at the plan, at the purpose that this young child who was born in a manger is going to provide for you. You will be filled with awe. Uh, my family likes hiking in the woods, uh, and I imagine getting deep in the woods at some point, and I have a guide because I don't know my way. I don't want the guide making suggestions. I don't want the guide standing off to the side giving me hints. I want the guide to be in the lead 
going forward, showing me the way in which I am to go. And the picture here about this young child who was born in this earth, who is a wonderful counselor, it's the direction, the wisdom, the guidance in which he is taking you will inspire you and will fill you with awe. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And we who know him call him Wonderful Counselor. And he will be for you this day and into the future a Wonderful Counselor. Let's pray. Lord, bless this, we ask. Bless our understanding of your wonder and your counseling that we might be more fulfilled and more uh, directed in all that is godly and all that is true, we pray in Christ. Amen. And he shall be called the mighty God. He shall be called the mighty God. Now again, you need to recognize that this is 700 years before the coming of Christ. This is long before there was a good understanding of the divinity of Jesus Christ. We recognize that Jesus is God, and yet here we have an assessment of this child that is born that 700 years before he was born is a realization that the one who comes that will turn the darkness into light is nothing short of the mighty God. Now, most of us have an immediate understanding of the word mighty, strong, powerful, uh, overwhelming, those kind of things. And when we talk about God in the Old Testament, very often the word mighty God fits really well, strong, powerful, mighty, those kind of things. But the word mighty also is applied not just to God in the Old Testament, but to others as well, to hunters, to soldiers, or to warriors, but not necessarily hunters as they are going out to hunt, or soldiers as they're going off to battle. How many of us know that comic situation? It's set up so often that I decided not to get an exa a specific example of it. The comic situation where somebody's bragging about how wonderful they are, you know, oh, look at me, I'm the greatest, and all this kind of stuff, and then right off the bat, they fall flat on their face and they fail with everything. It's a common comic situation, the braggart that is immediately humbled and, and really has no skills whatsoever, even though he says that he's the mightiest and all this kind of thing. So here we have this young child, this one who is born, he's mighty, he's the mighty one. And the association could be that, oh, this is just the self-bragging thing happening again. But again, that's not the way the scriptures use the word mighty. They reference it not in terms of hunters that are going out to hunt, but when the hunters return successfully, then they are mighty hunters because they have successfully hunted. Or soldiers that are going out into the field, out to, out to battle, they're not, they're not mighty soldiers, they're mighty warriors when they return victorious. Or a hero in the Old Testament is frequently identified as being mighty. Now what's my point? My point of this is that by using that phrase, mighty God, to associate itself with this young child who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus, who was born into this world, to identify him as the mighty one is a reflection not just of possibility, not just of capability. Okay, is Jesus mighty because he can do all these things? Yes, okay. But that's not the emphasis of this word. Not that he could do all these things, or he has the power to do all these things, but it's a reflection 
almost in the past. This is somebody 700 years earlier looking forward to Jesus Christ saying, look, you can tell from what he has done in the past that he is mighty. That is, that he's already fulfilled all of these things. Now, it's easier for us to understand this or to appreciate this in our own lives. We worship Jesus Christ. We worship the mighty God, the mighty one who, not because he's strongest, not because he can do all the things, but because he has done all these things. It's an invitation for us to look and to reevaluate Christ, not in terms of in, in our relationship with God, not in terms of what is still in the future coming, but what Christ has done for us in the past already. He already is mighty for us. And that's why we identify him as mighty, because of what he's accomplished. He's the mighty God, okay? Reflection upon deity. Once again, the amazing character here that this text 700 years before Christ's birth is already recognizing that Christ is divine. But we use the word God, again, kind of in the same way that uh, uh, for a long time I had that uh, Portuguese nickname. We use it just to identify that big fellow up in the sky. You know, how, how do you describe that being who is divine? Well, we labeled him God. But in the scriptures, that, that term God isn't just a name the way that we use it. What's his name up there? His, his name is God. That's how we talk. But God is the essence of that being that is up there. That's the essence of the divine. In other words, when we reference God in the Old Testament in particular, but certainly here, when Jesus is being called, that baby who was born in Bethlehem, being called, you're the mighty God, the emphasis here is not so much that he is the mighty one who is labeled with those letters, G-O-D, but rather that he's the mighty one that has all of those divine qualities. He's the mighty one who is full of sovereign love. He is the almighty one who is full of grace and mercy. He's the one who is full of righteousness and holiness. And again, he shall be called these things. The picture is that, this, that Christ already in your life and already in our lives is that mighty one, that history of his already working amazing things out in our lives, and then is applied individually to each one of us so that we all experience the mighty God. He shall be called the mighty God. We, collectively, as his followers, call him the mighty God. And he will be for you this day and forevermore the mighty God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are incredibly grateful for the grace that you give to us, for the divine qualities that you show us each and every day, overwhelming love, overwhelming mercy, overwhelming goodness, and Lord, for the might that you have already displayed in our lives, that you have successfully already demonstrated your goodness into our hearts. Lord, we thank you that we can call you the mighty God. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem 
whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He shall be called the Everlasting Father. Now, immediately we can slide into thoughts of Trinitarianism here. If you've been around the church for a long time, you know that uh, we talk in terms of we understand the Godhead to be of the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Spirit. And normally, and appropriately so, we recognize that the Son, Jesus, is the Son of God, not the Father, not the personhood of the Father. So this passage that says that Jesus who is coming to be born, who, again, we celebrated the all day yesterday, I trust, that we should refer to him as the everlasting Father. Well, how is that the case? How do we identify him with the first person of the Trinity, the Father, when really he is the second person of the Trinity, the Son? Now, we could go down that path, but I'm afraid that all of us would fall asleep right off the bat. And I'm not quite sure that's what Isaiah has in mind. As a matter of fact, I'm quite confident it's not what he has in mind. The everlasting Father. Uh, everlasting, this, we could easily here get into a philosophical discussion, just like we get into a deep theological discussion about the fatherhood of God. We could also talk here about a deep philosophical discussion. What does it mean that Jesus, that God, is everlasting? Uh, just so that you know the word that there is everlasting is the same word in Hebrew uh, where you would also call it eternal. So we could talk in terms of the eternality of the Father, the everlastingness of the Father, and we could talk about what that means, and we would be on solid ground to talk about the fact that God is ever, always, and always will be, and forever ongoing. We could talk about the everlasting nature of this, but I don't think that's necessarily what Isaiah has in mind when he says, look, when you see this baby, when you see this Savior who has come, this light that has come into the darkness in your world, you, you should think of him, you should call him, you should recognize the essence of who he is as the everlasting Father. I don't think Isaiah is saying you should have this deep philosophical thought that he goes on and on forever and that he's outside of time and, he, and his eternality and those kind of things, all of which are true. Rather, I think what's being emphasized here is this characteristic, this trait of God himself throughout the Old Testament that is applied in this case to the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is constant, that there is no change in him, that he is dependable, that who he appears to be will always be who he appears to be, who he has been in the past, 
who he will be in the future. That is that everlasting nature of our God. In other words, there's no end, and it's not that there's no end in time to God, but there is no end to the consistency with which this Savior is coming into this world. So we shall call him the everlasting Father. That is emphasizing, I think, this consistency, the constant nature, the, the dependability of this Savior. But why call him Father, the everlasting Father, the, ever, the, the dependent Savior, okay, the, the, the constant Redeemer? We could have used any of those words, and yet the prophet here uses the idea of a father. Well, here I think it has less to do with that Trinitarian discussion we were talking about and a lot more to do with what a father represents, particularly in the Old Testament. Now, again, we have to shift out of our own common mentality because we don't necessarily think of fatherhood this way today. But what was a father? The father was the one who overwhelmingly was responsible for the nurture and the care of those who are in his orbit. That's what the father was. So very often in the Old Testament, somebody is identified as a father who is not genetically actually the father of an individual, but because they have assumed responsibility, because they assume the care and the nurture for that person or that group of people, they then become the father to that group of people or to that individual. And so I think what Isaiah is saying here when he says, look, when you think of that baby who was born in Jerusalem, when you think of the coming Savior who will redeem your life, recognize that he is your father. He is the one who is responsible for your care, for the, the nurture that happens for you, for the purpose in life, for your direction. What happens to the father happens to the entire family. And that's an important idea, an important image that in our own excessive individualism that so often we miss. What Jesus is identifying, what Jesus is being identified here as, as the leader of his people in such a way that what happens to the leader happens to the people. That's what it means to be a father. And so here the picture is that the, the prophet builds for us is that we will have an everlasting father. That is, that the, the, the responsibility, the care, the nurture that this Savior that is coming, that this, this child who will redeem God's people, this everlasting nature will be constant and, and persist in every aspect of your life, and that he will forever be a father figure to you. He will forever be the one who is already going before, and what happens to him happens to you. The grace and the love that is poured out by him into your life is his fatherly act and work on your behalf. And so the picture is here that Isaiah has in mind is, is this Savior that is being born. He will be an ever, a constant in his care and nurture for you. And he shall be called the everlasting Father. And we who know him and love him, call him the everlasting father. And he will be for you this day and moving on into eternity, your everlasting father. Let's pray together.
Lord in heaven, how grateful we are that you are consistent, that you are constant, that nothing shakes you out of your de determination to redeem us, to demonstrate your love and care and nurture for us, that you are always the one who goes before us, that you are our everlasting, eternal Father. Amen. Amen. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, where it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And he shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He shall be called the Prince of Peace. Now, once again, I think that the intervening centuries can sometimes distort or shape our understanding of what we mean when we talk about the Prince of Peace. If you're like me, I happen to be an, an Angliophile, somebody that loves the English, uh, and so I always know, uh, you know, English history and the kings and queens and all that kind of stuff. So when I hear a prince, when I hear the word prince, I immediately associate it with royalty. And there is some flavor of that here in this text, obviously, because there were princes, there were kings in ancient Israel, and so the idea of a prince identifying himself with royalty wouldn't have been a total surprise to people. They kind of recognize that. Um, but the prince is used, and we kind of maintain the word use in this way, too, to some extent. It won't terribly surprise you. But a prince is is not just somebody of royal blood, but it's somebody who's the chief of something. He, he's the one that, that, that masters it, or is at the top of the food chain, or, or the guy that's in charge of all these things. And so when we're talking about the Prince of Peace, uh, here the imagery here is that the, this child who was born in Bethlehem, the Savior that is coming, he will, you will recognize him, you will see him, and you will call him. You're the prince, you're the chief, you're the the head, you're at the top of the game in terms of its peace. And so the idea here is when you look at Christ, 
when, when uh, Isaiah wants you to look at Christ and see this one who is coming and being born, that you will recognize him as the, as, as the chief, as the prince of peace. Now, if you've been around church at all for any length of time, you know that the imagery, the biblical picture of peace and the use of that word is so much richer than what we use it as. For us, it simply means the absence of conflict or the absence of chaos or something like that. And yet peace, this is that rich Hebrew word that you will recognize, shalom. Uh, it means so much more than just the absence of, of conflict or anything like that. And the, the, the crux of this and the picture for you to grab a hold of that will help you a little bit, as my guess is that almost every one of us here has known somebody uh, or a family member or, or a family that has gone through crisis, and yet as they're going through this crisis, they nevertheless exhibit this inner sense of peace that is just overwhelming. Uh, I, I hope that you can, somebody jumps to mind with that. Uh, there have been numerous times in my pastorate where I've been with people that have been in horrific situations, and yet I walk away thinking, man, there's no greater expression of peace than what I have just witnessed this person having in the midst of chaos. Uh, this shalom, this sense of well-being, of totality, of completeness, of purpose, of perfection. All of that goes into this idea that, that's behind this word of, of peace. And Isaiah's imagery is, you will be so overcome by the Savior that you will say, wow, you're the chief of peace. Now, Christ is the chief, the prince of peace, really in two different ways. And I think that it's helpful for us to recognize this. The first is that he is the prince of peace in that he has peace. He has peace. In other words, that Christ is not only the one that, 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 that is the prince of, of overseeing peace, or it's not like it's a, it's a, 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 a realm or a, or a place or something like that, but rather that he is the prince of peace in the sense that he himself is the author, he himself is the, the possessor. This is not just something that he has, but that he is the author of and maintaining. And so when we say that Christ is the Prince of Peace, he is the, the chief, the head of the one who possesses all of this peace in of himself. And those of us who have had difficult times and have struggled and have gone through sorrow and sadness, and so many of us, I mean, we're talking about the joy and the celebration of this time period, but all of us know that there are so many people, and perhaps many of them in this room right now, where the holidays are not a joyous experience, where they are difficult, where they are challenging. And that's the beauty of this Redeemer that Isaiah is highlighting, because the Redeemer here, Christ himself, is the Prince of Peace. He has that peace within him. But secondly, he is also the one who gives peace. He is not just the possessor of peace, and it's not such that you can only look at him as having peace, but rather the Scriptures portray this image that, that our Savior is not just the one who has peace himself, but he's also the one who gives it to his followers, to those who love him and who uh, associate themselves with him. And so he's the prince, he's the captain for each and every one of us of this shalom-filled life, this 
purpose-filled, this contentment, this understanding of, of satisfaction that is only found in Christ and that Christ gives to each and every one of us. This picture of, of Christ as, as the Prince of Peace is such that it touches to every single one of us. It's intended to touch to every single one of us. For he shall be called the Prince of Peace. And we, who have experienced his redemption, call him the Prince of Peace. And he will be for you, now and forevermore, the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. God, once more, we come, we ask for your comfort and your love, your blessing upon us, especially in those times of chaos, especially in those times of crisis or of sadness or of difficulty. Each and every one of those moments, Lord, we recognize and we acknowledge you are sovereign over and that you are prince over, that you are the one who has peace and who seeks to give peace to each and every one of us. Lord, help us to see anew the peace that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.